0: Beginning with his book called Crow in 1970, uh, Ted Hughes published an awful lot of poetry in the 1970s. I would even guess that the 70s were probably his most prolific period. And uh, he seems, as his biographers and uh, scholars have pointed out, um, after the suicide of Sylvia Plath, he seems to have found... uh, a certain way of his own of dealing with the huge amounts of poetry that he was able to write. On the one hand he would publish large major collections with uh, Faber and Faber in the United Kingdom and on other years he would publish smaller collections usually with smaller presses and I think uh, by the end of it uh, one of those small presses was run by his sister so that these were an outlet for him, these were a way of saying these are out of my system but there may have only been 100 or 200, sometimes I think maybe even only 50 copies of uh, a short collection of maybe uh, 10 or 15 poems and this was his way of controlling his output but also as I think I mentioned many times if we're talking about creativity here of just of getting rid of something, of putting it, uh, putting a movie out, putting, uh, finishing a painting by, you know, uh, putting it in an exhibition or just putting out a collection of poetry so that you can move on to the next thing. But what what this meant in the 70s for Hughes is that he not only went on a run of uh, miraculous books that I don't think anyone has equaled, um, I'll say in the final huge uh, collection of readings that I've done of Hughes that I'll be doing in the next month or so when I finally come to the end of his career that I don't think, I can't think of anyone uh, writing in English after Shakespeare who has done what Ted Hughes was able to do, and I don't think I'm alone in this uh, assumption. I can think at least of the the critic Michael Hoffman, who is very hard to please, said basically the same thing. Um, I would put him above Milton and Wordsworth uh, without question, and I think that the core of what he was able to do happened in the 1970s with Crow in 1970, uh, season songs, the remains of Elmet. Moortown Diary, and then a book uh, that came out in the 80s, in the early 80s, called River. Um, In those books is is poetry that I have never encountered anywhere else, and that I am stunned to read aloud here, and I feel lucky to be able to read it all aloud here. But what he also did in the 70s was uh, come out with a lot of shorter collections And books that he really wasn't happy with by the end of the 70s. I think it's in the early 80s if you look at his letters he says that he has spent uh, the last 10 years last 10 to 15 years uh, ever since he finished Crow. Uh, Basically he's I believe he says wasting his time he says something to that effect. Uh, Early in the late 60s and early 70s he was uh in he was associated or collaborated with the the famous director theater director and film director peter Brook, who seems in america at least to be most well known because i I remember seeing uh vhs copies of this in the library when i was younger Uh, he did a film version of the mahabharata of the great indian epic Um, he also did uh, a stage version of king lear that he wanted Hughes to sort of rewrite and adapt from Shakespeare. And I think Hughes sort of shrank back from that challenge and saw that it was something he would rather not do. But he also uh, uh, hired Hughes, you might say, or collaborated with him in the early late 60s, early 70s. They went to Iran and uh, put on a strange sort of modernist drama there. I don't know what you would call it Um, and it seems to have been an an exhilarating experience Uh, just as i was coming down here i was trying to imagine what i could compare it to and it would sort of be like imagine uh you are a a fairly well-known poet in the united states in the in the early 90s and martin scorsese tells you uh, i'm heading over to india or wherever it was that they filmed this movie uh, to film a movie about the Dalai Lama, and i'd like you to write the script um i don't I think that would be too good of a uh invitation to pass up and Ted Hughes was not able to pass up the invitation to go to iran and uh and do theater there uh like in the cliffs um, i mean it was just it sounds like it was an amazing time. But as he says in his letters, and as he reflects on it later, he sees that the experience with Brooke of working in the theater, of giving so much of his time, it meant that he wasn't able to devote that time, real concentrated time, to the poetry that he believed was his real calling, the poetry that uh, was the core of his uh, talent as a writer. And so you have books that uh That came out of those experiences in the theater and his attempts otherwise to try and work mythology into his poetry, to work his interests in the occult or in shamanism or alchemy or a lot of other things into poetry, and they find their way into books like uh, that have titles like Prometheus on his Crag another book called Godete, another book called Orts, a book called Cave Birds, a book called Adam and the Sacred Nine, and finally, uh, a book called Earthnum and another one called A Primer of Birds. And I don't think it's... Um, I don't think that there's really any... Uh, reputation that these collections have, other than as, not necessarily as blind alleys, but just as unsuccessful attempts to get at what he was doing, to get at what he was able to do best. And to my mind, and I think to others too, uh, the run of Crow, Season Songs, Remains of Elmet, Moortown Diary, and River are what he was doing. But if you read his letters, and if you read the biography uh, written written about him by Jonathan Bate that came out a few years ago, you also see something very surprising. Uh, When I say that those collections are my favorites and that they reach a peak that I'm not aware of in poetry and English for 500 years, uh, 400 years, um, what I'm talking about is what is collected in the huge collected poetry of Ted Hughes that came out, I think, in 2003 or so. But the original versions of these books um, were in flux. They were always in flux. So that the version of Crow that is collected in the huge thousand-page collected poetry of Ted Hughes, the uh, the version of Crow is something that is cobbled together from everything. From all the editions of Crow that he published, adding and taking a, taking a, uh, taking away poems here and there over the years, the versions of R- the version of remains of Elmet that he first published also included uh, photographs. Um, it was a collaboration with a photographer. It was only later, I think, in the early 90s, that the photographs were taken out and a bunch of other poems were added in. Uh, Moortown Diary, I believe, is the same thing. Where the original version that came out in the late 70s was sort of an elegy for his wife's father that uh, helped Hughes in farming work and it wasn't until again I think the early 90s when uh, the book was recollected and sort of reordered and other poems were added in and I think the the, that is also the case with uh, River as well which Oddly enough, if I'm remembering this right, uh, was a book that was published by or, or financed by uh, the Shell Oil Company, and they wanted to show that they were an environmentally conscious company, and they hired someone to do the photographs, and Hughes had these, these wonderful nature poems that you can go back and listen to that I read some time ago. And again, it wasn't until later when uh, a major edition of that collection was published, uh, not by the Shell Oil Company and without the photos, and you see the whole thing. So that you can understand why Hughes might think in the early 1980s. Um, Everything I've done over the past 10, 15 years has been scattered. Um, It's only really after the passage of time when he seems to have grasped what, uh, what these collections were, that he uh, found a way of giving them uh, a greater shape. Um, Now that is almost 11 minutes of an introduction to a reading of about 10 or 11 poems from those smaller collections. Uh, Hughes is somebody who wanted to work in sequences, wanted to work in narratives and stories even if sometimes his modernist or alchemical or mystical bent took him to places that uh, aren't immediately uh, tangible to readers. and So what I read here from uh, those sort of more scattered collections, again, I'll give the titles uh, when I start reading from them, um, I won't give any sense of what those books are about But it was strange in choosing uh, my favorites from these smaller collections that if you read them together, if you read the best ones together, the best ones uh, in my opinion, and maybe other people would find this too if they came up with their own best of, if you read all of those together, they are still poems written uh, roughly around during the same decade. And I think they do sort of cohere they are a way of seeing what he was doing uh, in an immensely powerful way. And a lot of them seem to be uh, picking up the power that he had uh, brought together in Crow, talking about uh, violence, human violence, violence, what violence does to nature in the human body. And then bringing some of the other poems, bring up uh, simply the more naturalistic, more diary-like nature poems. And uh, so I'll just start reading from them here. And uh, you can see how they sound all together. I don't think it is a shabby bit picking here and there from these poems. This is one poem, uh, poem number seven, from Prometheus on his crag from 1973. It says... Prometheus, arrested halfway from heaven, and slung between heaven and earth, swallowed what he had stolen. Chains hungered. These chains were roots reaching from frozen earth. They sank, searching into his flesh, interrogating the bones. And the sun, plundered and furious, planted its vulture So the sun bloomed, as it drank him, earth purpled its crocus. So he flowered, flowers of a numb bliss, a forlorn freedom. Groanings of the sun, sighs of the earth, gathered by withering men. Now, for my money, that is a wonderful poem, but if you... uh. That is poem number seven, I think, in a in a sequence that goes on. I think at least into thirty poems, and so it would be hard to uh, see how much that one gleams if you are uh, reading thirty other poems and that one is in the middle of it. Here is, and I don't know if I can call this a favorite poem. This comes from the collection *Godete* from nineteen seventy-seven. Um, this seems to be the pinnacle of what he was able to do uh, talking about violence to the human body and also uh, the sort of mythological cannibalism that happens in uh, many uh, many of the ancient myths and the Roman myths that he liked so much, the myths from Ovid. Uh, and this is a, just a remarkable utterance even if Uh, it is a terrible thing that is being described it simply says this I skin the skin take the eye from the eye extract the entrails from the entrails I scrape the flesh from the flesh pluck the heart from the heart drain away the blood from the blood boil the bones till nothing is left but the bones I pour away the sludge of brains leaving simply the brains soak it all in the crushed out oil of the life eat eat now it's very easy for a poet like Hughes to to become a parody of himself and and I think it's true that he filled many of his pages with poetry like that—that that is long-winded, or cliché-ridden, or just um, worn out and tired. This is uh, three, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. This is fifteen lines, and then the spaces in between the small stanzas. Uh, that is just about perfect if dark is what you're looking for this is an uncollected poem from 1977-1978 this is a longer one called New Foal it says yesterday he was nowhere to be found in the skies or under the skies suddenly he's here a warm heap of ashes and embers fondled by small draughts A star dived from outer space Flared and burned out in the straw Now something is stirring in the smolder We call it a foal Still stunned, he has no idea where he is His eyes, dew-dusky Explore gloom walls and a glare door space Is this the world? It puzzles him it is a great numbness he pulls himself together getting used to the weight of things and to that tall horse nudging him and to the straw he rests from the first blank shock of light the empty days of the questions what has happened what am i his ears keep on asking gingerly but his legs are impatient recovering from so long being nothing they are restless with ideas they start to try a few out angling this way and that feeling for like leverage learning fast and suddenly he's up stretching a giant hand strokes him from nose to heel perfecting his outline as he tightens the knot of himself Now he comes teetering over the weird earth. His nose, downy and magnetic, draws him, incredulous, towards his mother. And the world is warm and careful and gentle. Touch by touch, everything fits him together. Soon he'll be almost a horse. He wants only to be horse, pretending each day more and more Horse, till he's perfect horse. Then unearthly horse will surge through him weightless, a spinning of flame under sudden gusts. It will coil his eyeball and his heel in a single terror, like the awe between lightning and thunderclap, and curve his neck like a sea monster emerging among foam, and fling the new moons through his stormy banner and the full moons and the dark moons so that after the poems that seem like they belong with Crow you find that one where they seem to belong with Moortown Diary and the other ones here are three two, two small poems from his 1978 book called Orts And if I remember correctly, these feel like they belong with uh, Remains of Elmet. This is the first one in the collection. The fallen oak sleeps under the bog, assuming new centuries of black strength. It is nursing a hope of being disinterred in some good age and lovingly carved into a hard body. For the goddess of oaks. It does not care that the sun will split it with light. The acorn, in its nightmare of pigs, has no less of a hope. The leaf skeleton, lifted away by autumn, inconsequential as the wings of a crane-fly, has a hope. And then you fast forward all the way to poem number 44. Again, this one goes into the 50s, I think. It's hard to pick out the gems when there are that many of them. This is number 44. He did all that he thought he wanted to do. He had what people called luck and opportunities, which he took. He had what was called love. So much, such a weight of it the axle broke on the card of everything that was not love. In the end, he found he had been learning a language in school. Now he comes to the land where it is spoken, and he understands nothing, and he is dumb. That one might be worth reading again. Just imagine, a a 50 poem sequence where all 50 poems are not that great just take this one out and make up your own story for it it's a, a magnificent piece of what Hughes was able to do uh, making new myths listen to this he did all that he thought he wanted to do he had what people called luck and opportunities which he took he had what was called love So much such a weight of it, the axle broke on the cart of everything that was not love. In the end, he found he had been learning a language in school. Now he comes to the land where it is spoken, and he understands nothing, and he is dumb. Here we are. And now a few poems from his 1978 book called Cave Birds Let's see this is called the executioner the executioner fills up sun moon stars he fills them up with his hemlock they darken he fills up the evening and the morning they darken he fills up the sea He comes in under the blind, filled up heaven, across the lightless, filled up face of water. He fills up the rivers, he fills up the roads, like tentacles. He fills up the streams and the paths, like veins. The tap drips darkness, darkness. Sticks to the soles of your feet, he fills up the mirror, he fills up the cup. He fills up your thoughts to the brim of your eyes you just see he is filling the eyes of your friends, and now lifting your hand, you touch at your eyes, which he has completely filled up, you touch him, you have no idea what has happened to what is no longer yours, it feels like the world before your eyes ever opened. This is another one from Orts called A Green Mother. It says, Why are you afraid? In the house of the dead are many cradles. The earth is a busy hive of heavens. This is one lottery that cannot be lost. Here is the heaven of the tree. Angels will come to collect you. And here are the heavens of the flowers. These are an ever-living bliss, a pulsing, a bliss in sleep. And here is the heaven of the worm, a forgiving God. Little of you will be rejected, which the angels of the flowers will gladly collect. And here is the heaven of insects. From all these you may climb to the heavens of the birds, the heavens of the beasts and of the fish. These are only some heavens, not all within your choice. There are also the heavens of your persuasion. Your candle prayers have congealed an angel, a star, a city of religions like a city of hotels, a holiday city. There, too, I am your guide. In none of these is the aftertaste of death pronounced poor, This earth is the sweetness of all the heavens. It is heaven's mother. The grave is her breast, her nipple in its dark aura. Her milk is unending life. You shall see how tenderly she wipes her child's face clean of the bitumen of blood and the smoke of tears. And this is called Bride and Groom Lie Hidden for Three Days. She gives him his eyes. She found them among some rubble, among some beetles. He gives her her skin. He just seemed to pull it down out of the air and lay it over her. She weeps with fearfulness and astonishment. She has found his hands for him and fitted them freshly at the wrists. They are amazed at themselves. They go feeling all over her. He has assembled her spine. He cleaned each piece carefully and sets them in perfect order. A superhuman puzzle, but he is inspired. She leans back, twisting this way and that, using it and laughing, incredulous. Now she has brought his feet, she is connecting them, so that his whole body lights up, and he has fashioned her new hips, with all fittings complete and with newly wound coils, all shiningly oiled. He is polishing every part. He himself can hardly believe it. They keep taking each other over to the sun. They find they can easily, they find they can easily, to test each new thing at each new step. And now she smooths over him the plates of his skull, so that the joints are invisible. And now he connects her throat, her breasts, and the pit of her stomach with a single wire. She gives him his teeth, tying their roots to the center pin of his body. He sets the little circlets on her fingertips she stitches his body here and there with steely purple ink he oils the delicate cogs of her mouth she inlays with deep cut scrolls the nape of his neck he sinks into place the inside of her thighs so gasping with joy with cries of wonderment like two gods of mud sprawling in the dirt But with infinite care They bring each other to perfection And when I was reviewing what what poems to read here tonight I had forgotten this one and uh, just above the title I wrote a happy poem exclamation, exclamation point a happy love poem exclamation point a happy love creation poem from ted hughes if you can believe that exclamation point and here is another wonderful myth poem that would be hard to pluck out from an entire collection this is from adam and the sacred nine from 1979 and this is a poem called and the phoenix has come And the phoenix has come, its voice is the blade of the desert, a fighting of light, its voice dangles glittering in the soft valley of dew, its voice flies flaming and dripping flame slowly across the dusty sky, its voice burns in a rich heap of mountains that seem to melt its feathers shake from the eye, its ashes smoke from the breath, flesh trembles, the altar of its death and its birth, where it descends, where it offers itself up, and naked, the newborn laughs in the blaze. Now I'm sure since antiquity about a million people have written poems ...about the phoenix rising... Uh, ...but not one like that. Here, two more here. And these are from... ...let me see... ...these are from his book called Earth Numb... ...from 1979. This poem is called... ...Life is trying to be life... Life is trying to be life Death also is trying to be life Death is in the sperm Like the ancient mariner With his horrible tail Death mews in the blankets Is it a kitten? It plays with dolls but cannot get interested It stares at the window light And cannot make it out It wears baby clothes and is patient It learns to talk Watching the other's mouths, it laughs and shouts and listens to itself, numbly. It stares at people's faces and sees their skin like a strange moon, and stares at the grass in its position just as yesterday, and stares at its fingers and hears, look at that child. Death is a changeling tortured by daisy chains and Sunday bells, It is dragged about like a broken doll by the little girls playing at mothers and funerals. Death only wants to be life. It cannot quite manage. Weeping, it is weeping to be life. As for a mother, it cannot remember. Death and death and death. It whispers with eyes closed, trying to feel life. Like the shout in joy, like the glare and lightning that empties the lonely oak. And that is the death in the antlers of the Irish elk. It is the death in the cave wife's needle of bone. Yet it still is not death, or in the shark's fang, which is a monument of its lament on a headland of life. Might as well write above that A Happy Death Poem by Ted Hughes. And this will be the very last one I read. This is also from Earth Numb. And um, just to say here, uh, it, it, uh, it must have been quite a time being, uh, being such a prolific poet as Ted Hughes. Uh, many poets out there could scoff at that idea and wonder uh, how bad it could possibly be. But for someone who could shake these things out as as many times as he did, um, it must have been hard to have any perspective about it. It must have been hard to, uh, if you're able to write this well uh, so often, or if you're just able to write at all so often, um, it must have been hard to Uh, to know whether it was uh, a genuine, you know, exhalation of your creativity and your spirit, or if it is just uh, an itch that needed to be scratched. And so um, I sort of have uh, some affection for this dilemma, and it's been fun plucking 11 poems from what probably amounts to 200 or so pages of poetry and seeing how well they stand up and how well they run and seep and uh, blend into one another. And uh, we'll just end with this poem, which is called A God. And this is getting back into the darker stuff. Can't help that. This is called A God pain was pulled down over his eyes like a fool's hat they pressed electrodes of pain through the parietals he was helpless as a lamb which cannot be born whose head hangs under its mother's anus pain was stabbed through his palm at the crutch of the m made of iron from the earth's core From that pain he hung, as if he were being weighed. The cleverness of his fingers availed him, as the bullock's hooves in the offal bin avail the severed head hanging from its galvanized hook. Pain was hooked through his foot. From that pain, too, he hung as on display. His His patience had meaning only for him like the sanguine upside-down grin of a hanging half-pig. There, hanging, he accepted the pain beneath his ribs because he could no more escape it than the poulterer's hanging hair, hidden behind eyes growing concave, can escape what has replaced its belly. He could not understand what had happened Or what he had become. Now even that poem um, takes up the violence, the violence of human beings to themselves, the violence of human beings to animals, uh, the violence of religion and mythology, the violence of ritual, uh, and also just, um, and he makes it his own with the electrodes, that is what Hughes does, modernizing a lot of the myths and then just takes the animal details from his earliest poetry and from his most powerful stuff that he wrote around this time. From Town Diary, he brings in the torturer's aspect, I think that's as evident in some of his earliest poetry from his first book. Uh, And that is all right here. And there is the autobiographical as well uh, he could not understand what had happened or what he had become. You assume, and it's also uh, you don't know. Is this a uh, a modern poem that you're supposed to take to be about Jesus or Prometheus or any human being who is living with suffering? Um, all of this is right here in one astonishing page of poetry.